sleep is one of those things that the harder you try, the worse it gets sometimes, right? So sleep is one of those things that you have to allow it to happen. You cannot force yourself to fall asleep. From Spall Dameron Tenney, it's the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth. A show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now here's your host, Shane Tenney. Welcome back to the Prosperous Stock Podcast. My name is Shane Tenney. Glad to have you with us today. And today we're talking about that precious but all too elusive part of the day for many of us, sleep. Did you know that the American Academy of Sleep Medicine says getting enough sleep is just as important as eating right and exercising to your overall health? You probably do. Um, Healthy sleep helps the body stay healthy, fight off disease. Your health can suffer if you're shortchanging yourself on sleep, which so many of us have experienced over the last couple of years. And for those of you in healthcare and in medicine, you've endured the stress of the global pandemic and the extra demands on your work schedule and your family schedule and the stress causing what is being documented as an increasing lack of sleep. And so that is the topic that we're talking about today. I'm excited because today we're with one of the foremost experts on the field, Dr. Faria Abbasi-Feinberg who is board certified in sleep medicine, serves on the board of directors for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. She's practiced for over 20 years in Charlotte, North Carolina, now serves as the medical director of sleep medicine at Millennium Physician Group in Fort Myers, Florida. Uh, Dr. Abbasi, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And Shane, please call me Faria. Well, Faria, it is then. I'll start with the softball question on the topic. What about sleep is really so important? Shane, that is really the million-dollar question, right? So we know that sleep is essential for health. We know that it's important for longevity, and insufficient sleep causes all kinds of illness. What I like to do is break it apart into different categories and sort of talk about what those big buckets are as to why we need to sleep. So number one, sleep has restorative and reparative functions. For instance, we know that certain amino acids and hormones are released in sleep and they help with you know, muscle soreness and growth and things like that. Sleep has a housekeeping function. So there's a system called the glymphatic system, which is a waste clearance system in the brain, which basically eliminates proteins and metabolites that sort of you know, are produced all day long as we function and live our day-to-day life. What's really interesting is that we didn't know some of this. You know, when I started in sleep medicine, but these are new discoveries that have been found over the last 10 to 15 years. The other thing we know now is that sleep is really important in memory and in learning. So if you study something and go to sleep, you are much more likely to remember it the next day versus the all-nighters that we used to pull back in med school and college days. So it is better to get sleep. Another one that I think is really important over the last few years, especially with the pandemic going on, is that we know that sleep is important for immunity. So for instance, if you have a good night's sleep and then you go get a vaccination, we know that there's a more robust immune response and you can have better vaccine work from that. So I think that's just a great thing to look at it. We know that sleep helps performance and we know that sleep is important for psychological aspects. It makes us more 
empathetic. It helps us understand our partners, our coworkers, and our patients better. So overall, we really need sleep to not just sleep well, but to live well. Now, the rule of thumb that I guess I've always heard is that you need eight hours of sleep a night and I guess eight glasses of water a day. Is that true or or is it is it more nuanced than that? And some people really can get by on four or five hours and some people need nine or 10. So the American Academy of Sleep Medicine usually recommends that we try to aim for at least seven hours of sleep. There is a variation, right? There's a pattern, it's a bell-shaped curve, and most people need somewhere between seven and eight hours of sleep. Yes, there are those folks that need a little bit more and those folks that need a little bit less, but four or five hours is really very, very little sleep and probably not enough for human beings to function well. And I mean, in some ways, I guess I'm thinking that some of the science has even showed up just on the requirements of, for example, medical residents and just the demands on their schedule and and how that's changed over the last couple of decades, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was a neurology resident, we did 36 hour shifts pretty consistently. And then, you know, there were some accidents that happened uh, where residents fell asleep on the way home and Um, There were some concerns about work safety. And so there were limits that were placed on how long residents can function without being able to sleep. Some of that shifts through the times as new research comes out, we can see that uh, occasionally naps can sort of help out with less sleep during the day for residents. I don't usually recommend naps, you know, on a daily basis for other people, but residency is really a very special time. So we have to look at that a little bit differently than we do for those of us that are out working in the real world. Yeah, I was going to say, if there's a subset of the population that is that that has to endure uh, and, and learn how to navigate changing shifts and changing schedules, it's all of you in, in medicine. You know, it's interesting. It's not just medicine, right? I mean, we live in a 24-hour world cycle. So there are factories that work around the clock. You know, we have airline pilots that fly across timelines. There are folks at Walmart that work the night shift. And so really, this, is, this has become an issue that affects a greater portion of the population than we used to think. So on that point, and, and the one you were making just before about napping, it's what's the difference between, I don't know, say sleeping in sprints, where you get two or three or four hours, then work for a while, and then cram in a little nap, and then that sort of thing, versus the, the benefits of a prolonged you know, seven hours of, of sleep or something like that? You know, I think if we can aim for six, seven, eight hours of sleep in a consi- on a consistent basis, that's better. Human beings do do best with routines of some sort. And so if you can keep a regular cycle, that's really, really important. You know, we all have a built-in circadian rhythm, right? A, a biological clock that dictates when it's best for us to sleep, when it's best for us to eat, when our energy levels are better, et cetera. And so keeping on some kind of a pattern is really the best if you can do it. Mm-hmm. With life getting more and more convenient, you know, I don't have to drive anywhere. I can just order anything I need from my phone and things like that. Is the research showing that the increase in convenience is freeing up more time to sleep? Or are we finding that people are just more distracted by their phones or Netflix or whatever is available? And so we're getting less sleep. I think it's uh, really the second one, unfortunately, right? Yes. <laughs> so interestingly, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine actually did a... Uh, survey, I think in uh, before COVID actually, to uh, see how Americans prioritize sleep. And believe it or not, sleep came up number two 
second only to family, right? So everyone said, oh, they, family's number one priority in life, and then sleep is number two. But we don't act like sleep is number two. You know, most of us end up scrolling on our social media pages. We are on Netflix. We're watching things. And most of us actually don't make sleep a priority like we used to. So I think we're getting less sleep than we used to. Um, now, what I do love is that there's been more talk about the importance of sleep, right? There's more information available. And there's a certain sect of the population that's really taking this very seriously. And they're tracking their sleep. We now all have these wearable devices and nearable devices that monitor our sleep. And as people get more involved with that, they're trying harder to make those changes in their lifestyle so that sleep becomes a priority. Mm -hmm. What are the trends or has there been, is there recent enough research on kind of the impact that COVID pandemic has had on either the general population sleep habits or healthcare providers? Yeah, I mean, the COVID pandemic has disrupted sleep for many Americans. Um, you know, during the pandemic, there were various different factors. So there was the increased stress and anxiety of not knowing what was going to be happening. There was definitely a lack of regular schedules. So all of a sudden, people didn't have to wake up at a certain time and get the kids to school and get yourself to work, right? You could roll out of bed and basically start working right away or get the kids set up on their computer or homeschooling and go to work. So there was a certain loss of routine that I think really affected the quality of sleep of most Americans. Healthcare workers, I think, were a whole separate subcategory in that, mostly because of their schedules, especially folks that were working critical care, you know, doctors, nurses, all the healthcare workers, and even all the staff at the hospital had different schedules. But in terms of general Americans, there was actually an article in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine that found that if you queried, you know, how many queries there were for insomnia, there was a huge uptick between. Uh, March and May of 2020, when stay-at-home orders were issued worldwide. So people were interested in what was going on with their sleep. And I think they noticed that something was changing in their sleep. They were not sleeping as well. So they were trying to look for answers. It seems like almost a, a self-defeating cycle. As I just think about how I was feeling, and, and I think so many of us, you know, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, where you're in a state where you have increased stress, and I guess I'm assuming, or at least it feels to my body, like I need more sleep, but because of the stress, it's harder to sleep. No, you're absolutely right. I think our, our factors that affect sleep are very wide. And again, I think the lack of schedules, the stress, the thoughts racing through your mind, the worries about sick ones, loved ones, you know, there were people that lost family members. Of course, all of those things impact sleep. So I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's sort of a combination now. You know, it's interesting when we're in a time of stress, especially if you're like in a physical stress, for instance, let's say you have a fever, you know, it turns out that our immune system actually sends signals to the body and the brain that we should sleep more, right? Because you need that extra rest for your body to recuperate and rejuvenate. So I think it's fascinating that our body wants to do that when it's a physical stress. And yet when it's a emotional or mental stress, then it's more of a tug of war between who's going to win your thoughts, your bad thoughts, or, you know, your ability to, to try to relax, to get those thoughts under better control. For sure. For sure. One of the topics or phrases that we're hearing now is this phrase around COVID-somnia. 
what is that? And is it different from just regular insomnia that perhaps some of us have experienced throughout our adult lives? Yeah, that is a great question as well, Shane. So, you know, COVID insomnia is sort of a bucket term that we have for insomnia that developed during the pandemic. It is a way to evaluate what has happened to our sleep. So the American Academy of Sleep Medicine in July of 2020 conducted a national survey. Over 2,000 adults uh, participated in this. And it turned out that over 20% of people felt that the quality of sleep and the quantity of sleep was less during the pandemic than prior to it. When you look back at some of the data from the peak of the pandemic, we think about almost 40 to 50% of us were not sleeping well. But as the pandemic has gone on, um, you know, I think we've gotten adjusted to it. But those folks that are still left with this, um, you know, we say that they have COVID insomnia. And is the genesis of that just kind of the life stress and the dysregulation that a lot of us were experiencing? Or I, I guess I'm almost a little surprised just to hear this, the evolution of it, because in, in many ways, I feel like people were, as a general population, able to sleep in later and work from home. And Or was it just binging Netflix till midnight that makes you not sleep as well? Yeah, I think that that lack of routine really affected us. Um, you know, it turns out that sleep is part of our natural biological rhythm. So we do best when we wake up at a certain time and we go to sleep at a certain time. And you're right, all of a sudden, we didn't have to get up and commute to work. We didn't get exposure to light outside by having to get up at a certain time. The kids were doing homeschooling. And so I think the dysregulation of our day-to-day activity certainly played a humongous role in, in COVID insomnia. There were all the other stressors associated with it in terms of stress about finances and job loss, and of course, all the health risks that were involved. You know, early on, we just didn't know what was happening. And then as the COVID pandemic started to go on, there were, you know, folks whose family members were ill and we were concerned about them. And we ourselves, you know, a lot of folks got sick in the healthcare field. And so I think it was just a combination of all of that. And so what do you see as the most acute, or maybe acute is too too clinical of a term to use here, but If you're not getting enough sleep on a consistent basis, then what are the what are the side effects that are most often or that present most often? Yeah, we can divide up, you know, sleep deprivation sort of into partial sleep deprivation, chronic sleep deprivation, and then, you know, total sleep deprivation, which is which is what we do when we're residents in a sense. But typically the early signs of sleep deprivation tend to have to do more with mood and memory. We tend to be very irritable. We tend to be sort of short with the people that are around us. It can affect our interpersonal skills and our ability to be empathic towards others, right? So that's a really big, important thing. As the sleep deprivation goes on, it can affect your health in other ways. It can definitely cause problems with memory and accuracy, inability to complete tasks with speed and things like that. And then eventually, you know, we think it seems to affect your metabolism. There's increased rates of obesity in folks that don't sleep well or don't sleep enough. There's problems that develop with uh, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, and cerebrovascular disease as well. Uh, Lack of sleep seems to cause some inflammation, some inflammatory response. And we know that inflammation is bad for the body. Uh, So I think uh, you can see it sort of as a spectrum from very mild to something that can be pretty significant. Tell me a little bit, I guess I've never understood the sleep 
um, the, like the cycle or the the pattern, the the what the rapid eye movement and those sorts of things. And what happens when you're sleeping? And which parts of the like you dream during one phase, but that's not the phase that's most valuable or something like that. Can you? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So there are different cycles of sleep, and we all cycle through multiple cycles of these cycles of sleep. So for instance, you go to sleep, you go into stage one sleep, you go into a little bit deeper sleep, stage two, then you usually cycle into, into deep sleep, which is stage three. And then from there, you cycle sort of up towards two and then into dream sleep, right? So, and each of these cycle lengths is about 90 to 120 minutes. And we repeat that anywhere from three to four times during the course of the night. What I find fascinating is that early on, the dream cycles, the REM sleep cycles are actually fairly short. And as the night wears on, they get longer and longer and longer. And so we tend to therefore remember some of our dreams better the early morning dreams, if we wake up, we tend to remember those more. We don't remember the early ones. What's also interesting is you really need a combination of deep sleep and REM sleep to really feel refreshed, okay? You can't just count on one stage of sleep to do it. You've got to cycle through all the different patterns. As the REM sleep cycles increase, there are certain, certain sleep disorders that are more prevalent in REM sleep, and you see those more in the second part of sleep. And so there's a lot of folks that, for instance, have sleep apnea that gets worse during REM sleep. So you see more of it in the early morning hours. Um, and so you have more problems with heart attacks and strokes and things happening somewhere between two and six in the morning. And we think there may be some relationship to hormonal changes that are happening in cortisol levels, as well as the different cycles of sleep that are going on. Wait, so dreaming takes place during REM sleep or in the kind of the phase after that? So REM sleep is rapid eye movement sleep, and that's that's officially known as dream sleep. That's where we seem to have the most vivid, not hallucinations, but the vivid dreams that we see are usually in REM sleep. But to your point, it's I often wonder, like, it feels so real when you're there. And then as soon as you open your eyes, within like a second, you can, often can't remember at all what happened. Or maybe that's just me, but I mean, some people remember their dreams in details and will, you know, will give you like little tiny insignificant pieces. And they're like, oh, what does this mean? And what does this mean? And so it's really kind of fun to talk to people. You know, there are some people that can actually guide their dreams. There are some people that can sort of tell themselves what they want to dream about and they actually dream about those things. I'm not that good at that, but, you know, it's sort of fun to uh, talk to folks about dreams. That sounds like something that would really enhance your practice if you could help people learn how to direct their, their dreams. All right. Now, the other one, I'm, I'm thinking, why, as I'm aging, do I always wake up at 2.30 in the morning for no reason at all? Well, again, we as we cycle through different phases of, of the sleep cycle, it is actually normal to have a couple of awakenings during the night, all right? And I always tell folks, don't stress out about that. And certainly don't look at the clock to see what time it is, because as soon as you start looking at the clock on a consistent basis, it's almost like you train yourself to wake up to see what time it is. So people will say, oh, yeah, 2.30 and then 3.30 and then 4.30. And I'm like, don't look at the clock. You know, typically we end up going back to sleep anyway, and we don't realize that the awakening was very brief uh, and that the sleep was greater than the awakening. We seem to remember the awakenings because we looked at that clock. That's actually a good reassuring point. Even though I'm awake, the sleep has been more than the awake. 
I generally try to like, yeah, just if I get stressed about it, well, then I'm definitely not going to go to sleep. So just wake up and yeah. <laughs> just lay there and try to stop thinking about things. Right. And, you know, sleep is one of those things that the harder you try, the worse it gets sometimes, right? So sleep is one of those things that you have to allow it to happen. You cannot force yourself to fall asleep. And so you have to set up the best circumstances to make sure that your environment is conducive to sleep and you have to allow it to happen naturally. Those of you wearing white coats to work every day, literally or figuratively, know how important your training, specialty, and income are to your future. But what happens if you get sick or hurt and can't work? The truth is that during the course of your career, you are three and a half times more likely to be injured and need disability insurance than you are to die and need life insurance. Disability insurance is one of the most important pieces to protecting the progress you've already made and the future you're building but it's also one of the most nuanced types of insurance. If disability insurance is something you'd like to be more knowledgeable about, check out the free guide available for download from our sponsor, Spa Dameron Tenney, at their website, sdtplanning.com. Click on the Financial Resources tab to download the free guide to understanding disability insurance. This and every episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is sponsored by Spa Dameron Tenney, helping docs and dentists make smart decisions through comprehensive financial planning. Download the free guide to understanding disability insurance at sdtplanning.com. For listeners that are having trouble sleeping or have in the past, uh, how do you know when to get help and, and what sort of things can you do yourself or should we be aware of that can maybe um, you know help us get back on track with better sleep? There are some general guidelines that we give out uh, and I have a list of good sleep habits that I talk to with my patients. But I feel considering your audience, I'd like to focus in on some good sleep habits for professionals in the healthcare field. I think, first of all, we don't tend to prioritize our sleep, right? We talk about lifestyle modifications for our patients, but then we don't take care of ourselves. Um, you know, we are not superhuman that we can get away with no sleep or less sleep than everybody else, you know, needs to get. What I suggest to physicians and other healthcare workers is a lot of common sense, but unfortunately, it's not common practice, right? So first of all, it is important to try to keep a routine as much as possible. Now, this doesn't work if you're doing shift work or if you're you know, seven days on and then seven nights on and things like that, and you have to sort of figure out how to work that. There is some literature out that shows that switching sort of halfway in between each schedule on the days off seems to help people you know, get adjusted to their new schedule. These days, though, with intensivists and hospitalists and laborists, I think there's more and more shift work. So those of us that are out in the practice world tend to have more nine to five jobs, but we are also overwhelmed with chart work, family obligations, and all of that. So I always tell folks, you know, try to get your work done. If you have to do any work in the evening hours, make sure that you're done with it at a reasonable time so that you can turn the electronics off and get to bed and have a wind down routine and, you know, sleep you know, make sleep important. I think that's what it comes down to. A couple of the other things I talk about often for folks that are not sleeping well is take a look at your surroundings. 
make sure that it is conducive to sleep. Make sure that it is cold and dark and quiet if you can do that. Um, you know, the best temperature for sleep is actually down to like 65 to 70 degrees, which is very cold, but people do really well with that. I am actually a big fan of uh, having soft sheets and maybe even a weighted blanket can really make you feel all snuggly and sleep. There are some apps that you can track your sleep. And these apps are sort of a double-edged sword. You know, sometimes it's nice for people to track what's going on, but other times folks get sort of hooked into that and worry about the fact that they're not getting good quality sleep. I sort of see it that if patients come in with information, I look at it as a as a, yay, we have a starting point to start a discussion. This is somebody who cares about their sleep. And so let's see what else I can tell them to try to really tweak it so that they can do well. Um, you know, light is very important. Exposure in the morning is great for light, but in the evening and nighttime, you don't want too much light exposure. And so again, turning off electronics um, and winding down is really, really helpful. So those are some of the big issues that I talk about for physicians and for other healthcare workers as well. Now, you didn't mention the one that I know somebody is thinking of while they're listening to this, and that is, what about the nightcap? How do you feel about a little uh, a little something to settle down before bed? Yeah, well, you know, I think all substances prior to sleep need to be evaluated carefully. So folks think that a little nightcap, a little beverage will help them fall asleep. And in some cases, it can, it can be relaxing and help you fall asleep. But then it turns out that as the alcohol is metabolized, um, the rest of the night tends to be more disruptive. So there's more nighttime awakenings and sleep is, sleep quality is actually worse. Um, you know, talking about substances, it turns out that that food is important, right? Timing of food. So eating too close to bedtime disrupts sleep. Um, there are lots of different medications that disrupt sleep and some of them we don't even think about. So for instance, some of the decongestants, you know, people think, oh, this will be fine. I have allergies. Maybe I'll just take the, this medicine with a D component on it. And the decongestants can keep you awake and, you know, ruin your sleep. Some people are so sensitive that even eye drops that have some decongestants in them can get absorbed and cause trouble with sleep. So, you know, evaluate the whole picture. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to make all these changes all at once. But pick and choose a couple of changes and see what you can do to try to improve the quality of your sleep. Yeah, that's and, and but now here's my follow up, which is as the father of four teenagers, what's the difference between my teenager's sleep and a grown adult sleep? You know, most teenagers naturally have a little bit of a delayed circadian rhythm. So I had mentioned the biological clock that we all have. And in teenagers, it is natural for it to be delayed. So they prefer to go to bed later and they prefer to wake up later, right? Mm -hmm. And if we just would let them do that and there was no social constructs that made them get up earlier, that would probably work fine, but they have to get up and go to school. And so on school days, you know, a lot of them are up very early depending on where kids go to school and what their transportation issues are. So they have to be very early. And then often when they're sleeping in on the weekends, it can really disrupt their circadian rhythm and cause problems Sunday night, Monday night, um, the first few nights of the week until you get them back on a rhythm and then they do fine. Now, there's a lot of teenagers that can flip back and forth perfectly well and they don't have any issues with it. But if there's folks that are developing problems with it, keeping them on a routine is really, really important. You know, for adults, 
we tend to have pretty regular hours at work, um, depending on what shifts we work and what kind of work we do. And so, you know, we tend to be more consistent and it's easier for us to stay on schedule because of that. So am I helping my teenagers by letting them sleep in till 10 or 11 on Saturday or am I hurting them? It depends on if they have trouble falling asleep. If they don't have trouble falling asleep, then letting them sleep in a little bit is probably fine. Um, you know, most teenagers tend to be somewhat sleep deprived. Actually, most Americans tend to be somewhat sleep deprived. Now, sleep is not like a bank account where you can sleep in on the weekends and therefore fill your bank account up and then use it up all week long. But it is helpful to get enough sleep to have some catch up sleep on the weekends if the teenagers are not getting quite enough sleep during the week. Yeah. Is it true? You you mentioned just Americans in general. I don't know if it's a global issue or more of a, an American or just Western culture issue, but in general, being sleep deprived. I think I heard last year on an NPR podcast or something, just that I think somebody saying something to the effect, if we all drank enough water and got enough sleep, we do away with like 50% of the, the ailments affecting us. Are those two things that impactful to our health? Yes. And I think if you add in eating well and exercising, you know, you've got the recipe for good health. You really do. But most of us don't do those basic, basic things. Mm -hmm. So when is it time to see a specialist like yourself? If somebody, you know, how do you know when it's not just, all right, a week's pattern of dealing with some life issues or stress or that sort of thing, but I need to go see a doc. We all have some bad nights, right? It happens. And if we get over it, that's perfectly fine. Um, there are folks that have chronic insomnia. So chronic insomnia is defined as having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep for more than three nights a week for three months. So if something's been going on for a long period of time, you know, try to get some help. Also, if you are very sleepy during the day and you're having trouble focusing at work, and especially if you are the kind of person who has a driving job or you know, a safety concern where if you're sleepy, get some help. Um, there's a lot of great websites out there. Uh, the one that I usually plug is sleepeducation.org. It's for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has a whole website. And I don't mind that people will get some information off the websites and try to change some of their habits before they come to see someone like me. But if it's not working, if you need more help, talk to your primary care provider. And then if they feel that you need more care, they'll refer you to somebody like me and I can help you with more details. Right. Because there may be something more significant going on, like you mentioned, sleep apnea. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, sleep apnea is very, very common and it really increases your risk of high blood pressure and heart disease and stroke. And it could cause memory problems and sleep disruption and cause sleepiness and all kinds of issues that are very, very easily evaluated and, you know, can be fixed and helped. And so I always tell people, you know, ask for help. That's what we're here for. Excellent. Excellent. Well, just having this conversation once makes me want to go take a nap. So. <laughs> um, Dr. Bossi, let me ask you a question. You've um, had a, a great career uh, spanning a couple cities now from uh, the time you spent in Charlotte, North Carolina, and now in uh, Southwest Florida. I've realized we all uh, kind of advance based on the contributions of those who've poured into our lives. And I want to give you a chance. Is there somebody you'd like to shout out uh, who's been really uh, important to you in your career? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, on a professional basis, I'd like to acknowledge Dr. Susie Esther. Uh, she's well known in Charlotte. Uh, she's uh, been in Charlotte for, gosh, forever from home mind. She's also past president of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and I had the great privilege of working with her. She's one of these incredible people that just lifts everybody up. Uh, she encouraged me to be active in the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and she actually placed me on a committee that I was not terribly enthusiastic about originally, but it honestly changed my life, and it led to this opportunity for me to be on the board of directors for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. So Susie, if you're listening, thank you for everything that you've done. Excellent. Yep. Cheers to you, Dr. Esther. Well, Dr. Bossi, thanks so much for uh, being with us today, for your insight um, and your good contribution to the field of medicine and to all our well-being. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you very much. And as always, thank you for listening. I appreciate uh, you being here. You can track us down on social media channels. If you have any ideas for podcasts or guests, you're welcome to email me directly. It's simply shane at whitecoatwell.com. Thanks. I'll see you back here next time. This episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron Tenney has been helping physicians and dentists prosper through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast.